Is this mic turned on? Wax poetic. Hi, kids. I'm a dinosaur hunter BMX rider. All the little girls dream of one day biting into a corn dog and smiling at the camera. If I ran the web, you could email dead people. Wax poetic. And I don't give a moment's focus to who does or doesn't like the sound of my voice. In the terrarium is herpes. Herpes is a hermit crab. Just say no to family values. This is Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what if I write a poem like a song? Good afternoon and welcome to Wax Poetic. I'm one of your co-hosts today, Pamela Bentley. And I'm R.C. Weslowski, also uh, here in the co-host chair. And our guest today is Julie Peters. Hello. Hi, Julie. Thanks we've for had having you, me. Yeah, we've had you on before, but you were talking about other people's poems. You were talking about the poems that were chosen by the... East Van Poetry yeah. Salon. Yeah, yeah, the the top poems of the year. From the East Van's Poetry Salon, right? Yeah. So um, we wanted to have you on to talk about your own writing. So can you start us off with a poem? Uh, so this new book that I've written is not a book of poetry. Um, it's a book about... Um, it's sort of uh, one way to say it is that it's a book about goddess mythology. And um, I'm excited to be here today to talk about it because um, it's sort of from the yoga and spirituality perspective, but I really got to exercise my um, skills that I learned when I was doing my master's in poetry um, at McGill uh, many years ago now. And uh, so for me, this book is a little bit of that. It's, it has an element of poetry to it and uh, when I was reading about these goddesses, I was really analyzing them the same way that I used to with poetry. And um, that's something that I don't necessarily always get to talk about mm. around the, the book. So I'm really excited to um, share some of that with you guys. Okay, cool. Um, so I can read a little excerpt from the prologue. Um, the book sort of started when I was going through a really difficult time in my life. And I came across this goddess whose name is Akilandeshwari, and she her her name means she who is never not broken. So <laughs> she's this goddess that um, I learned about from a teacher in New York named Eric Stoneberg, and um, she is sort of smiling sweetly, and she's standing on the back of a crocodile in a river. And on both sides, she has these multiple images of herself kind of um, expanding out into infinity, the way that uh, the image would be if you were standing between two mirrors. It just sort of goes off forever. And so she's this this image of kind of fragmentation. And she's really about um, being able to find power in your brokenness. And really in those moments in your life where something happens that kind of breaks you down and makes you just kind of completely lose your story of yourself. And she kind of says it's actually in between the spaces of those fragments that you can be your most powerful. Um, So I'll just read you a little paragraph um, from the book about that. Wholeness may be comfortable, but it's also limiting. Akilandeshwari's brokenness acts like a prism that breaks white light up into many different colors, the colors that were there all the time that you couldn't see them through the unbroken white light. Difficult times in our lives can break up our story of ourselves and reveal colors we didn't know were there, like our resilience, our compassion, or some great desire that has thus far never been fulfilled. Suddenly we realize how oppressive it is to have to be whole all the time. When we can learn to snuggle up with the experience of brokenness, we're able to face our fears. We can ride them down the river like a Keelandeshvari on her crocodile. This goddess wants us to see the possibilities that emerge when our lives are in pieces. She wants us to play within the fragments. So when we were, we, this frag, how, how does that how does that connect with your 
poetry. How does that connect with your writing? Because you said that you used what you learned from writing poetry. So can mm-hmm. you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, Akilah Dashri is not one of the uh, moon goddesses. The the meat of the book is about these 16 eternal moon phase goddesses. And there's one on writing that I'd love to uh, read a little bit about uh, later as well. Um, but the way that I went in and researched these uh, goddesses was partly through Eric Stoneberg's lectures, but also I, I got my hands on this book called the Tantra Raja, which is this really old tantric text that explains about the goddesses. And um, it was a translation that I got from Arthur Avalon, who's this sort of colonial white guy living in India, just really fascinated by, by Tantra, and he translated it. And so it was this amazing book of these really evocative descriptions of the goddesses, and they, the way that they're described is, is really like poetry and so you know there's one goddess who's floating on a golden boat in a river of blood and there's a goddess whose eyes sway like red wine Mm. and you know there are just these these um, descriptions that are not sort of logically realistic necessarily but they really are evocative in the same way that poetry is for me and so I had these descriptions that were you know not necessarily super accessible or easy to understand but I was able to go through and kind of take out the symbols and the pieces um, from the those descriptions and work with them the same way that I would have with a poem to kind of be able to say like, oh, this river of blood is actually about, you know, this quality of, of um, the philosophy. And here's some more uh, to understand about that. And so I was able to pull together um, the symbols from those descriptions with um, other information from yoga philosophy, but also I used a lot of modern psychology and sociology. So the, the goddesses are really about relationships and all of those symbols can tell us something about who we are now um, and how we have relationships with ourselves and with our communities and and in our love relationships as well and um you know it's it's really represents i think the way that mythology can always tell us a story about ourselves as we are Mm -hmm. now when we read back into it in that way what are you hoping uh, anyone who reads this gets from it Um, I think there are a range of different things that you can get from reading the book. It's also a bit of a guide. And what you can do, if you like, is meditate with the goddesses nightly. So um, there are 16 goddesses, and each one represents a different night of the moon. So it starts on the new moon and then goes all the way up to the full moon. And so each night I've offered a meditation and a journaling practice um, that you can do with the energies and symbols and images uh, that are evoked by these figures. Um, So you can do that practice. For some people, it will be a really spiritual experience of reading the book but I think for other people too um, it's um, it's a story I mean that's what it is Mm. and it's a story that is meant to offer something to you that's personal to you and individual to you and for me my experience of not just poetry really um, all different types of of writing fiction and, and all of that kind of stuff is that the best forms of writing for me are the kind that when you read or hear them, it hits some piece inside of you that's personal to you um, and can speak to you on that level, even if you don't know the author or the person who's who's reading the poem. Um, and so I'm hoping that this book can do that for people, where there's just some piece of it that allows them to, to really feel something in themselves and think about um, their own relationship to you know themselves or or others or, or whatever it is that they're going to kind of get out of the book um, when they when they get into it. Mm-hmm. So is that 16 um, goddesses per month rather than So it's it's year? like a 16 night cycle. Uh-huh. So um, Kameshri is the goddess of the new moon and then Bhagamalani is the goddess of the second night and then Klina is the goddess of the third night and it goes on until the full moon. So it's the, technically a full moon is 15 
days. Okay. But in Tantra, there's a little trick where there's always a little bit extra. <laughs> there's always something extra that you can work with. And so the 16th goddess is named Lalita. And she's actually also the umbrella goddess for all of them. So they all kind of manifest her as well. And she's this, um, Sally Kempton calls her the goddess of erotic spirituality. Um, so the energy of the goddesses really definitely has an, an element of, of the erotic in it as well. Okay. Yeah. Now you, um, did you actually do this practice yourself? I know that you were writing some full moon poems or some moon goddess poems um, in the last couple of years, because I've heard you do a few of them in public. And so was that a practice that you were putting into place and then went, okay, I'm going to write about it? Or what came first? Or did it all happen at once? Or That's a great question. Um so, uh, as I said, when I first started discovering these goddesses, I was going through a really hard time. And the moon goddesses offer a practice that is can be as consistent as you want it to be, because the moon is always there, right? And um, the, the name, the larger name of the goddesses is Nityas, and the word Nitya in Sanskrit means eternal or forever. And um, sort of like Akhilandeshri, whose name also means she who is never not broken, the Nityas are about this eternal cycle that's constantly happening, but it's also never the same, right? The moon is always fragmented. It's, it never really stops. Um, and so the practice has been there for me in and out in many different ways. And it's made me pay attention to the moon in a way that has been really helpful for me so that when I've gone through these difficult periods, I've been able to kind of look up at the moon and being like, oh, it's third night. That reminds me of this particular goddess and this particular lesson that she has. And so even if I haven't necessarily been sitting there meditating with the goddesses, they've always been in my consciousness. Um, and I actually just uh, published a, a chapbook, which no one has seen yet. It's just in my living room um, called the, the Moon Poems because I've written, you know, probably 15 poems about the moon right, over yeah. the last couple of years. It's been really, yeah, a part of my, um, a part of my writing subconscious for sure. And it's been coming out in a lot of different ways. And that was the conversation that RC and I had when I said, uh, we were talking about guests for the show. And I said, well, why don't we have Julie Peters on? She's got her new book out. And he said, well, it's not poetry. And I said, sure it is. She's got all those poems about moon goddesses and it's about moon goddesses. So it's, it's all those poems. And it's it's not. It's the chat book that you just mentioned. Did you bring that? Did you bring I didn't bring it. No, oh. I didn't bring it. <laughs> you have any of them memorized? No, I don't think so. Oh, that's too bad. I might be able to find one on my phone if we take a break. Yeah, I can that find would be, one. That would be an interesting thing to hear. Um, when you said, you know, when you're going through a tough time and then you look up and the moon is always there, it's that steadiness, right? It's like mm -hmm. this too shall pass. The next phase, the next phase, the next phase. So what do you do between the full moon and the new moon? Do you do them backwards? They go backwards. Yeah, okay. they do. Yeah, there are a couple different ways so it's like to... like the size of the moon. Yeah, you can think about it in a couple different ways. So some people go backwards and some people start from the beginning again. Um, and as I was doing the research, of course, everyone has a different opinion on what should happen there. Um, so you can kind of think of the shape of the light of the moon. Um, it's always in that same shape if you go backwards. So you're kind of looking at this particular shape and, and following it in that way. Right. So you can do it that way too. Usually I just go from new moon to full moon and then I take a break. But. Well, and the moon is everywhere. We can see it all over the world. Yeah. It's been written about in every tradition. And you've chosen the Sanskrit, Indian, Hindu. Well, I, I guess it's Hindu because there's so many goddesses. Tantric Hindu, yeah. yeah. And the, gone to the tantric texts for yeah. this. Mm -hmm. Why that instead of something that might be rooted in your own background? I mean, I'm assuming that that's not your background. Mm -hmm. uh, um, something that's rooted in your own background or something that's rooted in the place that you are living or places you have lived. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I write a little bit about that in the book. Um, 
I am a yoga teacher, of course. And so, you know, I've been exposed to these different kinds of traditions and mythologies. But I think that, um, you know, yoga and uh, specifically goddesses in general, not necessarily tantric goddesses, but goddesses from all sorts of um, traditions are really, really popular for especially women in the West. And I think that um, a big reason why we get drawn to these other traditions that aren't our own is because there are things that we lack in terms of our own mythologies, our own rituals, our own, you know, culture and patterns and things like that. Um, I think a lot of people in the West are kind of post-religious. You know, we, we maybe grew up in a certain tradition, usually Christian, but then, you know, don't necessarily go to church anymore or whatever it is. And so I think, you know, part of the reason people are so drawn to yoga is because it represents this other way of being, like another perspective. Um, and you can go towards that perspective and in the process of doing that, kind of throw out the things from your own culture that you don't like and sort of attach to the things in the new tradition that you do like. But of course, what happens there is that we end up misinterpreting things a lot of the time as well. Um, and there are a couple of um, qualities that you, you kind of hear a lot about in, in Western culture, like the idea of karma, for example. We've kind of misunderstood that and we sort of uh, talk about it in a way that's just appropriate to actually what we already believe in Western culture. Um, and it's not actually true to the way people in India understand karma, as far as I understand it anyway. And so I think we can kind of mess it up a little bit sometimes when we when we forget that, of course, we're from a place and whatever we're reading and thinking about is going to be um, colored by, you know, those experiences. But I, I don't think that means we shouldn't engage with those other traditions and learn what we can from them and be able to pull from that and just, you know, maintain our sort of critical thinking about it and and uh, learn what we can, but with humility. Yeah. Have you got any pushback uh, against against the book or that, you know, you writing the book as a, a white person and all that sort of stuff? Not yet. I mean, I, I, I sort Is of am. the first one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sort of am expecting um, to come across that. I mean, I've written a lot about these things, um, you know, in... in uh, online like I have lots of um, articles that I've written about stuff and I've found that like as when something gets um, read enough someone's going to disagree with you in mm. some way um, I know that my teacher who I learned this stuff from he's a white person from New York um, and his teacher Douglas Brooks is a also white scholar Sanskrit scholar who spent a lot of time in India his teacher is Indian so it's this lineage that's mm. sort of been passed through a few different white lenses um, and uh, you know that's the best thing that we can do I think is just be aware of that and be cognizant of it and be honest about where we're getting this information and how we're interpreting it. Um, but I know that he's gotten a lot of uh, flack for how he interpreted mm. these goddesses. And, you know, as I was going into the source material as deeply as I could without being a Sanskrit speaker, um, you know, I found lots of disagreeing, you know, ideas. But I think that that's just, that's also just how religion and, and tradition works, is that different people are going to have different ideas about what it all means and what it's all for. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying my best to, to make sure that I'm listening to how other people feel about it and, you know, um, what's going on with that. But I also think that I, I can be an authority on my experience. Um, and these goddesses have been really, really meaningful for me. And I hope that as long as I'm expressing that in a way of like, I am a white person, this is my experience, this is my, um, the cult these are the cultural lenses that I'm using to interpret this for reasons that are helpful for me at this time. And I'm not expecting that anybody else interpret it the same way that I did. Um, you know, I'm not proselytizing for that um, so I'm hoping that as long as I can keep that I can I can at least uh, stay in integrity in, in terms of what I what I wrote cool. 
Yeah, it's that awareness, right? And that's why I asked the question, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Because I knew that you were aware of it. I mean, I assumed you were. You're smart. You've been doing this for a while. I did write about it in the book, too. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that I was acknowledging Do you want to read that. something um, more from the book that yeah, maybe let's... addresses that? Or, or while you're thinking about that, we will do a station ID. We can do it slowly. She's looking through her book. So our guest today <laughs> is Julie Peters on Wax Poetic on Vancouver Co-op Radio CFRO 100. Point five FM, and uh, there's going to be a book launch this coming Sunday at Cafe de Soleil for uh, Julie's book and uh, Emily Nimitz, uh, Alberto um, is performing as well, and you've got some belly dancers. Is that happening? Or I have a belly dancer and a burlesque dancer and a contemporary dancer. Oh, cool. yeah, all three, and then two poets, Emily yeah. and Alberto. Yeah. Okay, and that's uh, Sunday at Cafe de Soleil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, eight? doors at no. seven. Show starts at eight. Show starts at eight. So yeah. like the three aspects of the goddess. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Get did you find something goddesses. to read? I did, yes. Okay. I, I have my little uh, piece on this topic, and I can read it for you. Okay. I hope it's not too long. <laughs> Be maybe no, a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, my main source for learning about these goddesses is through the lectures of New York yoga teacher Eric Stern- Stoneberg. He learned about them from Douglas Renfrew Brooks, a religious scholar who spent many years in India conducting his own studies and working with his teacher, Dr. Gopala Iyer Sundarumuthi. These lessons are generally passed on orally, which is a key part of tantric tradition. In one of his studies, Brooks explains how important it is to both read texts and also talk to practitioners, exploring the oral and the scriptural tradition at once. He writes, while this approach will lead to different versions and therefore different translations of the text, it's perhaps the only way to touch the pulse of tantrism. The few texts that are available further are often carefully encoded to keep from revealing the secrets of the tantric tradition without an ordained guru present. When we try to pick up translations and read them for ourselves, it's easy to get lost. That's actually the intention. The texts are often designed to prevent the uninitiated from understanding them. Tantrics in code concepts omit crucial interpretive elements and deliberately stanch the uninvited from entering into traditional secrets, Brooks points out. Nevertheless, secrets do have a way of getting out. Sir John Woodruff, also known by his pseudonym Arthur Avalon, was a white Englishman who was fascinated by Indian culture, especially Tantra in colonial times. He translated many tantric texts, and I found his 1918 summary and translation of the Tantra Raja Tantra, a medieval tantric text, especially useful. As I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, it's not possible for me to go back and look at how Woodruff's colonial perspective may have changed the original meaning of the text. The information I have available is necessarily filtered through a Western lens. And some of his translation also had notes saying unintelligible. There were just parts of of the text that weren't, he couldn't even translate. I don't believe, however, that that means I shouldn't study the goddesses at all, or that what filtered versions I find are not valuable. I don't pretend to be an authority on any of these topics, but I am an authority on my own experience, and these goddesses gave me something I really needed that wasn't otherwise available in my time, place, or culture. When my world didn't offer me the space to be anything other than whole, I needed to look elsewhere to find a new perspective. These goddesses offered lessons in all the states I was going through, broken, healing, whole, and everything in between. It's not that this perspective is inherently better than the Christianity or atheism that's more readily available in the West, and I'm not arguing that we should all convert to tantrism. We're not exactly invited. 
The Nityas were first imagined many centuries ago in a time and place where I, as a Western woman, never would have been welcome. This book aims to offer a new perspective that can help us look at our assumptions and our cultural inheritance. We're not here to steal or appropriate from another culture. But if learning about these different perspectives can draw us closer to ourselves and each other with humility and a willingness to listen and learn, we can create an environment of rich cultural exchange that can allow us to see ourselves and each other more clearly. The poet and monk Basho was f uh, famously once asked, what is the essence of your practice? He answered, whatever is needed. We must be aware that our understanding of any spiritual tradition will be marked by our personal experiences and unconsciously held values. We must also be aware, however, that what's going that that's going to be true of any text, no matter how old it is. Brooks points out that any text must be appreciated as a human artifact whose sacred quality or qualities are not inherent, but constructed in social history. There is no perfect teacher, worldview, or religion. Our practices work when they can give us whatever's needed. So when you say that this gave you what you needed, that is that is really cool. You've got the moon goddesses. It's a very woman-oriented practice. Is there also, I've been seeing the reviews it's and comments. It's very open to men too. Yeah, I've been seeing yeah. the reviews and comments online, and it's, they've been very positive, and some of them have been from men. So men, men or people who do not identify as women, can can get something from this as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think women are are tend to be more drawn to the goddess tradition, um, maybe for obvious reasons. But um, the tantric perspective is complicated from a gender perspective in terms of that social history. So I won't get get into that too much here. <laughs> but um, there is uh, one of the fundamental elements is the idea of Shiva and Shakti, the masculine and the feminine. And again, depending on who you ask, the sometimes we get this impression that that means women have Shakti and men have this Shiva quality. And that's not the case. In Tantra, absolutely everything that exists has a balance of both of those energies. Um, and so, you know, you can, if you want to think about it more as a symbol and less of something that has to do with your genitalia. It's not really about that. Gender um, fluidity. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, throughout history, I mean, men men have been worshipping the goddess and still do in India, you know, for a really, really long time. It, it's never been a practice only for women. And just as many uh, of these traditions, you know, usually the, the gurus are men and all of that kind of stuff. My mm -hmm. teachers on all this stuff are men. Um, and I think that, you know, as long as you can get past that idea that goddess should somehow more belong to a woman, which mm -hmm. is not the case, like as long as you can get past that, there's something in here for everyone. And I was careful to, I am a feminist, there's going to be some feminism that's coming through in the book for sure. But for me, that also includes how the patriarchy affects men and how men live in the world and so you know uh, I have a uh, one of my really important texts in the book was actually this um, book uh, called I Don't Want to Talk About It by a psychologist named Terence Real and uh, he really talks about um, you know men how men are and uh, how men live in this culture and how men are indoctrinated and how the patriarchy affects men and he has the whole book is about covert depression in men and it was absolutely fascinating it was such a great and illuminating book for me and so I felt like I was also able to talk about you know um, how men respond to some of these things we learn in our culture and how these goddess practices might help um, a man who's reading them to kind of think outside of some of those cultural assumptions and and maybe find a different perspective as well. Can you read from uh, the one about the writer goddess? Absolutely. Before we run out of time. Yeah. yeah. I so yeah, because like you said, you know, you you're an authority on your own experience. So the writing is coming from your own experience. So it's great to hear some of that. 
Yeah, and uh, so uh, ninth night, Kulasundari is uh, the goddess of learning. And, uh, you know, a lot of these goddesses, they have many hands and they're holding lots of different kinds of weapons and stuff like that. They have swords and maces and shields and things. And Kulasundari doesn't really have any of those. She has a citron fruit and a conch shell, but she's also holding a book and a golden pen, which, as we all know, the pen is mightier than the sword, right? Um, And her power really comes from learning, reading, and writing. And a big part of this for me is about learning the master narratives of our culture. So learning the stories that we've been taught. We're supposed to be following in our lives. And some of that is about gender. You know, we learn because of our gender, our assigned gender, like what we should look like and how we should behave and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she's somebody that's like, let's read those books. Let's learn what those stories are. And let's bring some critical thinking to that and write our new stories with our golden pen. So this is a little piece about her. The golden pen. Writing is an act of empowerment. Writing can be a way to explore what we feel in our bodies, to process the information we're receiving and discover the difference between what messages are empowering for us and what messages are not. Kulasundari does not simply have all the words of the Vedas in her head as a form of memorized knowledge. She has read it deeply, felt it in her body, asked it questions, written out her own answers. She needs no sword to battle the disempowering master narratives of romance or anything else. She has a golden pen with which to write a new story. Writing has often stood for the work of pure thinking, and sometimes it's been set up as a rejection of the body or the emotional self. Poet and cultural critic Audre Lorde points out that the white Western patriarchal ordering of things requires that we believe that there's an inherent conflict between what we feel and what we think, between poetry and theory. When we believe that, however, we are cut off from any tools we can use to understand the link between our minds and our bodies. The binary itself disempowers us. We're easier to control when one part of ourselves is split from another, fragmented or off-balance, Lord warns. For feminist writer Hélène Sixou, writing is the tool that expresses the body. Writing can be a form of resistance against those disempowering stories and a way to reclaim the erotic energy and agency that lives in your flesh. In her 1976 essay, The Laugh of the Medusa, she writes, And why don't you write? Write! Writing is for you. You are for you. Your body is yours. Take it. When we are prevented from exploring ourselves through the practice of writing, a part of ourselves is shut down. Censor the body, and you censor breath and speech at the same time. If we can write the body, if we can reconnect the frayed wires between body and brain, heart and mind, write yourself, Siksu exhorts. Your body must be heard. Only then will the immense resources of the unconscious spring forth. That was wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's really empowering. I mean, it's sort of what we were talking about just before we went on, like, that you know you you're writing your own story so then when somebody else tries to make it back to the story that you were writing against you're like no that's not what i was doing please yeah. stop that that exactly. is i don't want to go back there right yeah that's right you yeah. get to write your own story and not let somebody else write it for you yeah cool thank you so much for being uh, our guest today thank this you so much yeah, yeah we have a few announcements there's a few well there's there's uh julie's launch that we should say again is on sunday at what time it's uh doors are at seven at cafe du soleil Cool. And you're launching your book. And Emily Nimitz is also going to be doing some. Yeah, Emily word. Nimitz will be performing poetry. Alberto will be Alberto Benevente is performing poetry as well. And we have uh, Olivia Davies and uh, Luna Essence and Rahel will all be dancing. Cool. Every time you talk about that, you get a shiny smile. Mm-hmm. Your oh, eyes well, twinkle. You know, well, I get to make whole... the event, so I get to invite all the people I most want to see. Well, <laughs> and the whole time you were talking about the book, too. I mean, I, I, I hope people could hear it in your voice because it was very engaging to watch you read and talk about it. Um, Thank you. And, you know, 
that transfers on to radio in some ways. Um, so Thursday, tomorrow, there's Twisted Poets with Timothy, Timothy Shea and Joan Haggerty. 7 o'clock, Cottage Bistro, as always, is a little bit of an open mic. Um, also on Thursday at the Heartwood at 6.30, there is an event called Breaking the Fast 2016, glittering showcase of rad Muslim artists. And um, Amal, the Rose, uh, Amal the Rosewater Poet, who's been a guest on on uh, Wax Poetic, is one of the organizers of that. That's at 6.30 at Heartwood. Uh, then Friday on June 24th, Surrey Muse with Fauzia Rafiq, an author, performer, San Jan Jua, and uh, I'm the featured poet. Oh, uh, excellent. I should have let you say that one. I see. <laughs> you know, you're, everything's coming up, Pam, or something. I don't know. Uh, Saturday, January 25th, uh, the Vancouver book launch for Adrian Gruber and Jennifer Zilm. Um, at the Gold Saucer Studio, which is at 207 West Hastings Street, uh, number 211, 207 West Hastings Street. It's at 7 o'clock. Jennifer Silm's book is Waiting Room, and Adrian Gruber's is Buoyancy Control. I think those are both from Book Thug. They're running that thing. And then... There's a couple Poetry Slam events uh, coming up on uh, July 3rd. The Vancouver Poetry Slam team is having a fundraiser, a show at Café du Soleil. Uh, all the Four of them will be performing as well. I think you have some musical guests, and it'll be five to ten dollars sliding scale. And this coming Monday, it's the Youth Poetry Slam with the debut performance debut as a group, the 2016 Youth Poetry Slam team. Sweet. Um, also on Saturday, June 25th, Weekend Warriors are playing at Heartwood and Jillian Christmas and uh, Kim Vigilante at Villa Villagante, Kim Mortal, um, and. Um, one other person. Oh, Chelsea Johnson is going to be joining Weekend Warriors, which is Lexi Marie and Mucha and Juliana. And then on Sunday, Poetic Justice. Two o'clock. Timothy Shea's everywhere this week. He is uh, featuring with uh, Tim, uh, Chelsea Como at Poetic Justice on Sunday, which is at Original's Restaurante Mexicano at 800 Carnarvon in New Westminster. That was a lot. Yeah, why are you stepping away from the mic? <laughs> because there was a lot. I was like, I'm going to step away from the mic so I don't say any more and RC can talk. Uh, what's the name of your books for people who... <laughs> the name oh. of my books, I almost forgot, uh, is Secrets of the Eternal Moon Phase Goddesses, Meditations on Desire, Relationships, and the Art of Being Broken. And the publisher? Uh, Skylight Paths and Turner Publishing. Skylight Paths. Thanks so much for being our guest today, Julie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it's it. Great to have you here. It was great. Uh, and that's it for us. Uh, we're back next week. Hopefully you can tune in at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Wax Poetic here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. I'm R.C. Weslowski. And I'm Pam Bentley. No apologies necessary with Pam Bentley is coming up next. <laughs> well, I'm only uh, I'm only at the board. I don't think I'll say very much. But yes, it is coming up next. You've been listening to Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what? So what? So what? So what?